If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How has the BBC reflected a transforming Britain over the last 100 years? To mark the centenary of the corporation, in this podcast series, the media historian David Hendy has been charting its history from the 1920s to the present day. In this final episode, David spoke to Matt Elton about the challenges that the BBC has faced in the 21st century and looks back at what its past can tell us about the future. So we're now reaching the end of our history of the BBC. Um, in our previous episode, we left the story in the mid-2010s. Are there any other developments that have happened subsequently that we should bear in mind as part of this longer story? Well, I think a lot of our discussion in the last podcast was was about technology as well as about certain scandals. It was largely about technology and the internet. And of course, technology does keep changing an institution like the BBC has to be constantly alert to new developments. But I would say that the main thing that we should talk about, because we mustn't miss it, is the political context of the BBC since the 20, since about 2010. And I think the BBC's history is full of run-ins with government. I mean, there's a, it's a source of constant friction. The BBC is in this sort of unusual position. It's not a state broadcaster. It's a public corporation. It's ours. And yet it's got a a complicated relationship with the state, a close relationship with the state. It's almost an an organ of state. That's how we, we view it. And I think there's a long history there of, regardless of the political party in power, of problems. But there's a distinction, I would say, looking at it historically. The Labour Party, when it's in power, seems to be disappointed with the BBC. It's as if it wants the BBC to compensate for the right-wing biases of the British national press. And of course, the BBC will never live up to that expectation. The Conservatives, when they're in power, I think have a deeper ideological distrust of the BBC. There is something that has always been disturbingly collectivist about it in some way. Uh, and we know, we've we've talked before about Margaret Thatcher and her hostility to the BBC. We know that Churchill uh, was highly critical of the BBC, that The BBC had a run-in with Anthony Eden and, and so on. There's a long history there. But I think since 2010, the situation has been particularly serious for the BBC. It's a particularly hostile government environment. And 
we know that the, the, the government in power can use its, its ability, its constitutional ability to periodically set the licence fee and to renew the charter. And so even though nominally it, it, it doesn't, as it were, interfere in the daily business of the BBC, it can make a huge difference depending on what it does with something like the licence fee. And in the run up to charter renewal, it, it can uh, nudge the BBC in in all sorts of, of ways. Now, since 2010, for a start, the licence fee has either been frozen or set well below inflation. And the result of that is quite profound, cumulatively since 2010, the BBC's licence fee income has gone down at least 30% in real terms. It's now heading to nearer 40% in real terms with the latest uh, licence fee freeze. And on top of that, there are all sorts of extra commitments that the BBC has been asked to take on. So whereas once uh, the free TV licence for the over 75s was something that was funded by government. The BBC has had to take on board for itself the cost of that government welfare policy. Um, Similarly, it's having to take on board extra costs in terms of running the world service uh, and so on and so forth. So that's a, a really, really important political economic context for the last 12 years, that diminishing resource that the BBC has had to manage with. And alongside that, there has been a kind of niggling culture war relationship between the government and the BBC. So um, whereas those on the left might think of the BBC as as an institution which is just stuffed full of Tory lickspittles and is very pro-establishment. Um, those on the right, uh, including the government and its allies in the national press, would say that the BBC is stuffed full of woke liberal metropolitan types uh, who are, quote, out of touch with real opinions and real feelings uh, around around the country. And this, in a way, it means that the BBC is drawn ever deeper into the kind of wider culture war, if you like, and is is represented, and I would say misrepresented in a certain way nationally. And then just a kind of third element is a whole series of ways in which there can be kind of political friction between the BBC and the government. So one of the arguments that the government and its supporters have advanced is the idea that the BBC is just too big. And it does too much stuff and it needs to be more distinctive. Now, the subtext in a sense for this is the BBC should be smaller. And that's where it ties in with the the licence fee. A diminishing licence fee income makes it harder for the BBC to do things. But that rhetorical argument that the BBC also needs to be more distinctive. In other words, it should concentrate on providing the kind of core service of programmes that the commercial sector wouldn't naturally create. News, say, or or classical music or whatever it might be, is something which is a real challenge to the BBC. And it's a real challenge because essentially what the BBC has always historically been about is about a full range of programmes to inform 
to educate and to entertain and for that full range of programmes to be universally accessible. So, so the idea of the BBC being distinctive and distinctiveness being defined in terms of a certain kind of programme is, is a battle that the BBC really, really needs to, to win, to persuade the British people in general, but the government in particular, that a kind of a smaller, narrow, narrower range of programmes is not what the BBC is about. That Some of those tensions... Um, and we'll get on to some of the more uh, historical parallels in a minute. But some of those tensions about what the BBC should be and what it should reflect, uh, we've talked about previously in terms of whether it should represent the tastes of the nation or whether it should in some way shape them. And we know from previous episodes that have been figures in the BBC who've taken different views on this. Are there moments in the 21st century that you think are particularly illustrative of how the BBC now reflects or shapes the nation or how well it does so? The simplest answer to that, but probably the least satisfactory for you, is that the BBC kind of both reflects the nation and perhaps leads taste by the sort of totality and range of its output. In other words, how can you capture the taste of a nation? It's so diverse, it's so complicated, that only a diverse and complicated output across the whole stage of television and radio and the internet can reflect that. No individual programme could. On the other hand, it's useful, isn't it, to pull out examples, I suppose. And I suppose I'd, I'd like to kind of focus on some unlikely examples of that. And, and I'm thinking of, for instance, in the entertainment genre, reality television. Reality television, in a sense, by definition, is something that is supposed to be a reflection of reality. But we know that reality TV is to some extent also constructed. So maybe it's a really good example of the relationship between kind of reflecting uh, and and leading. And I, I'm, I'm thinking of, of programmes like, say, The Choir in the past, which has kind of taken groups of people who wouldn't necessarily think of themselves as capable or able to sing or to perform publicly. They might be all sorts of reasons why they feel inhibited through their social background or their upbringing or something, a, a personal trauma that has happened to them. And yet here is a programme produced by the BBC, which which takes people and, as it were, takes them on a journey, that cliche of reality TV, where they discover how capable they are. And that, in many ways, is is profoundly Rethian. It's a piece of reality TV that uh, allows us, as it were, to use that kind of Rethian phrase, tap into and find our better selves. Take Strictly Come Dancing, Saturday night, popular television format, and yet it's a format that has, while entertaining us, in a kind of very straightforward way since 2004, it's also been very clever about introducing us to concepts that many people will be unfamiliar with. Same-sex dancing couples, the ability of people with a, with a profound disability, like deafness, to be able to dance and so on. So it, it's kind of both 
reflecting the kind of society we are and the entertainment we like in a fairly traditional way. I mean, ballroom dancing, that's pretty traditional. And yet it's also revealing and amplifying uh, a kind of Britain that some of us will be unfamiliar with and showing the kind of human potential of everyone. I suppose my last example would be, in again, in the entertainment section, um, BBC Three. I think which many people might not think of as a classically Rethian uh, service of the BBC has actually produced some startlingly good dramas and comedies that have that have tapped into really important social issues. So a comedy series like Alma's Not Normal really offers insights into the experience of people who've been in care in my skin a drama series on BBC Three that really tackles mental illness. And if you think of the more serious end of kind of reality television, like um, the series Exodus, which was a kind of documentary series several years ago, which basically used mobile phone technology, gave mobile phones to refugees who were, were crossing the Mediterranean, seeking a better life gave incredibly powerful, immersive view of what it was to be a refugee, to risk your life to cross the Mediterranean. And so, I mean, I mentioned these programmes because we tend to think of being informed in quite traditional ways as, as a function of news and current affairs. But actually, very often it's these... Uh, these programs that are in the documentary genre or entertainment or reality TV or simple Saturday night popular uh, dance shows that actually are at the forefront of, of changing our views about, about race or sex or class or, or how we feel as a nation. I suppose that also ties into my next question, which is, again, unhelpfully broad in its own way, is that historians are often rightly wary of the idea of drawing lessons from history. But can we see the BBC's current moment, and I suppose here I mean politically, technologically, culturally even, as being shaped by uniquely current forces, or are there historical roots that we need to bear in mind? Well, it's a bit like answering the question about leading and following taste. It's actually kind of both, I think. I mean, it, it feels as if the BBC's value to society is no longer something which is taken for granted in the way in which perhaps it was several decades ago. And therefore, to some extent, what, what feels new is it, it has to work harder to justify its existence. And, and actually, we're discussing, we're marking, we're celebrating the centenary of the BBC. So we're reflecting on 100 years of history. But there's a danger in all of that reflecting, which is that we tend to think of the BBC solely as a, a creation of the 20th century, something that, well, mattered then, but maybe doesn't matter now. And that's a challenge for the BBC. And it's actually in many ways why I think the BBC is itself slightly uncomfortable about marking the centenary, because it doesn't want to appear as something which is about the past. It needs to be focused on the present. So that kind of, that is a, a relatively new concern, I think. 
On the other hand, um, if we think about the arguments about why the BBC really should exist, despite all these criticisms, despite all these attacks, actually, there's a kind of resonance with the 1920s, because the BBC, in a sense, had to justify its existence then. It was a novel institution. It was one that started small, but tried very, very quickly under John Reith and his colleagues to establish itself as an important part of British cultural life, the British polity, um, something that would um, report on the world and introduce culture as broadly as possible to as many people as possible. It, it had to justify its existence. And so I think those arguments that were made in the 1920s about uh, what the BBC was essentially for, that it wasn't about radio as such, it wasn't about television, it was about giving access to as many people as possible to the best that has been thought and said and done, to quote again those kind of Reithian phrases. And I think that that phenomenon about justifying the BBC's existence in the 1920s, I think, is, is something which resonates again now. Another moment, I think, where we can see sort of historical roots to current debates is in the issue of impartiality. The BBC has a, a has a director general, Tim Davey, who has made great stress on the BBC's role within an era of fake news to provide impartial information. He's made it a very, very important part of the BBC's mission. And there, I think, we can see, again, some really important parallels with the BBC in the Second World War. The BBC wasn't a news organisation right at the beginning in the 1920s. It only really started to be a news organisation after the general strike in 1926. But it evolved pretty slowly. But during the Second World War, its relationship with truthful reporting became absolutely central to its identity and its reputation, not just among British listeners at home, but among overseas audiences, particularly listeners in occupied Europe. When the BBC reported on what was happening militarily, it was important for the BBC's reputation that even if it couldn't tell the whole truth, it didn't tell lies. And of course, it was under government control, Nominally, there was a Ministry of Information, there was a system of censorship and so on. And there was friction between the BBC and the government over this. You know, the government would always be tempted to kind of uh, think of the BBC as a useful tool of propaganda. And the BBC successfully, I think, in the course of the war, pushed back against the government to establish the fact that if the if the British state really, really needed people to receive the message, the, the, the British message about what was happening in the war, what the values were that Britain was fighting for, then it would only do that if people tuned into the BBC. And people would only tune into the BBC if people trusted the BBC. So that issue of kind of trust and trust based on a kind of 
pretty robust approach to truthfulness, I think, is something where we can look back to the Second World War and the way in which the BBC navigated its relationship with the government and defended some of its fairly newfound journalistic instincts against all sorts of external pressures. I think that provides a really useful set of parallels with the current debates about impartiality and and fake news. And just as the relationship between the BBC and the government is important, so obviously is the relationship between the BBC and the general public. And we've talked a lot about sort of the changes within the BBC across this period. I wondered whether it was possible to chart any ways in which changes in wider Britain has changed people's relationship with the BBC. Do you think it tells us something about our attitude towards social institutions such as the BBC as we head into the 21st century? I'm sure it does, although, I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a kind of such a broad... I mean, culture is something that is very difficult to nail down. And, and here, again, I'm sure it's a quote I've already used in this, in this series of podcast uh, interviews, but it's a quote from Asa Briggs, the historian of the BBC, who said, to write the history of broadcasting is, in a sense, to write the history of everything else. I mean, you know, broad, it, society is not just the background in a history of the BBC. It's, it's, the relationship is intimate and complex and, and, and continuing. And it goes back to that notion that the BBC isn't just a mirror to the world. It's something that, that was created to try and change the world, to make the world, as it were, a better place. Um, and so, you know, the, in a way, we can't understand the development of British society unless we actually think of the BBC as part of that that story. And the fate of the BBC is emblematic, I think, of the kind of society that we want. Uh, and let me just take some of the current debates when we talk about, for instance, the future of the BBC and whether or not the licence fee is outdated and, and so on, there is a phrase that you can hear which is quite common, which is, why should I pay for something I don't use? And in a sense, the BBC is an institution which has tried to resist that notion in society that we should only pay what we use um, because actually it's about a kind of national resource which we all contribute to. Now, actually, as it happens, most of us use the BBC in one way or another. If we don't watch BBC One TV, we maybe use uh, its recipes online or our children use Bite Size for their schoolwork and so on. Um, so more of us use it more than we think. But even if we didn't, the idea is a bit like the NHS, I suppose, that you're contributing to something that even if you don't use now, you might need to use later in life. And even if you don't use it later in life, someone else might need it and use it. And you are helping them to be able to access it and use it. And in the meantime, by making that contribution, you are contributing to improving the the, the national discourse uh, to, to, to the level of public knowledge about the state of the world and so on and so forth. So I think that the BBC, in a sense, represents 
something which is about a kind of collective spirit, a national conversation, a shared culture, and so on. And and the kind of culture war argument, I suppose, goes back to some people will think, well, that's that's old fashioned. We we're in a different place now. But I suppose those of us who both study the BBC and at a deeper level support it, perhaps not uncritically, believe that there still needs to be space in contemporary culture for that shared resource, for that kind of collective consciousness, if you like. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. A visitor from the 1920s BBC would recognise some enduring ethos, that core ethos that the BBC still operates outside of the commercial sector. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I've asked you a few questions which we could creditably say were impossibly broad. So I thought it would be nice to ask perhaps a smaller sale question at the end um, as we head towards the end, which is, do you think there are any individuals who have worked in the BBC who have contributed to its story who we've not yet perhaps celebrated as much as we should do? Well, uh, Matt, that's that's broad in a different way, isn't it? Because tens of thousands of people have worked at the BBC uh, and it's it's so hard. Of course, when you tell the story of the BBC, either, you know, through the book that I've written or through these podcasts or the articles uh, I've, I've written to for the BBC History magazine, you're picking out a tiny, tiny handful. So, so the answer to your question is, yes, there are thousands of people that we haven't mentioned who deserve a mention. How, how, can, I, how can I respond uh, more helpfully? Let me pick out two people who are perhaps emblematic of the kind of gaps that, that, we're, that histories of the BBC can so easily make. The first is Janet Quigley. 
Now, she is someone who was responsible for many of the really popular and important wartime programmes like Kitchen Front. You know, there are lots of spectacular wartime programmes that were more famous, but Kitchen Front quietly got on with a really, really important task, which was to kind of help uh, people at home to feel that they were contributing to the war effort by managing with rationed food and doing it in a way that was entertaining, not hectoring, uh, which encouraged people to keep listening and to feel as if there was some sense of hope that they were making a difference. And then after the war, Janet Quigley becomes the editor of Woman's Hour. Profoundly important programme, starts in 1946, uh, and a a programme that initially was dismissed as just, oh, the usual stuff, fashion tips and recipes and childcare um, topics and so on. But actually, it mixed that right from the beginning with a serious discussion of politics, welfare issues. It introduced women listening at home to all sorts of public debates about contemporary politics and so on. And Janet Quigley was one of those people who, right from the beginning, established that a programme like Women's Hour would, to use her phrase, show the far horizon to those who were working at home. And in 1957, it's Janet Quigley, who, along with one of her colleagues, Isa Benzie, is influential in setting up what becomes the Today programme. It's described in 1957 as a morning miscellany, a kind of lightweight programme for the Home Service. But right at the beginning is baked into it something that Janet Quigley and her team from Woman's Hour and Kitchen Front and, and so on had had all experimented with, which is this idea of a kind of mixed magazine format that actually dealt with pressing contemporary issues and current debates in a way that was accessible to a large, predominantly working class audience. So Janet Quigley is, is, is I think, an important figure that we, we perhaps would have neglected otherwise if we hadn't mentioned her. And just another example is Alfred Bradley. He is a reminder that not everything happens in London. <laughs> You know, the BBC is not just based in London. Of course, what happened in Savoy Hill and Broadcasting House and Alexandra Palace and Television Centre is profoundly important to the history of the BBC. But Alfred Bradley was a drama producer based in Leeds in the Old North region. He joined in 1959 and he was profoundly important for tapping into the kind of upsurge in new writing that was taking place at that time. Uh, And and he would recruit writers like Carla Lane or Barry Hines or Trevor Griffiths and, and bring those new voices, those new writers into the BBC. And that was the kind of grassroots regional work, tapping into local culture, new talent, that would feed later into what was happening in London uh, and, and, and would end up on series like Play for Today and the Wednesday Play and so on. So I think it's a reminder of that kind of local, regional, dispersed uh, role of talent in staff, I think. It's not all happening in London. And just finally, having mentioned those two, 
I would say that it, there are also all those engineers, those clerks, those secretaries, the graphic designers, the makeup artists, the studio managers, the librarians, even the accountants at the BBC. Programmes don't just get made by producers. They get made as a result of a kind of team effort. And that team effort extends to all the sort of administrators and supporters and so on across the BBC. So, you know, I, I leave them nameless, alas, but but I think it's important to remember all of those people as well. Do you think that an employee from the BBC of its first decade would recognise the culture of the BBC in 2022? I think at first they'd be pretty disorientated and uh, they'd be disorientated of course naturally as a result of all the technological uh, changes i mean if you think back to you know the 1920s uh, the primitive technology of radio it was all live it was very ad hoc it was very experimental and then suddenly they can see a broadcasting institution which has not just um, introduced television but is in the internet age, the digital age where where sound and images and text are reduced to kind of data files that move invisibly around the world uh, at virtually instantaneous speed. That will be incredibly disorientating. And that cultural change as well that over the decades, I think, will also be disorientating. If you think back to the 1920s, you have a situation where someone like Cecil Lewis, one of the original pioneers, set out at the BBC to share art, poetry and music. Those are the things that he thought would kind of redeem humanity after the kind of mess of the First World War. But he had a very clear idea of what he meant by art and poetry and music. I mean, for him, it was clear and obvious that um, that if people listened to Beethoven, they would be better people as a result. Um, similarly, John Reith had a very clear idea of what the canon of culture was and what would be improving. Now, since the 1920s, we've had, apart from anything else, the ideas of Raymond Williams, who's written about culture and reminded us that culture is everywhere, that everyone has culture, that culture is ordinary. And I think that that notion that all kinds of art and poetry and music, all kinds of ordinary aspects of our lives are actually part and parcel of what broadcasting is about, I think will be a genuine shock to them. And if we think specifically about people's opinions, for instance, again, Reith in the 1920s was very clear. He said uh, the microphone should be accessible only to those who had an opinion that mattered, people of standing uh, and expertise and so on. I mean, we know for decades now, broadcasting has included phone-ins and vox pops, and it has sought to reflect our opinions, even if those opinions are not fully rational or based on expertise, that our opinions, our feelings, as it were, matter in some way. So I think that will be a real shock. What I would hope 
is that after the, the initial shock of technological change and that kind of broader approach to culture, after that had been processed, a visitor from the 1920s BBC would recognise some enduring ethos, that core ethos that the BBC is still operates outside of the commercial sector. Uh, it has a commercial dimension, but it still exists to serve the public. And it defines serving the public as, by and large, trying to make the good popular and the popular good by trying to bring the fullest range of information, education and entertainment to as many people as possible. And that all that technology was still very much a means to an end. We've been orbiting this question for a little while, but what do you think the future holds for the BBC? How likely do you think it is, for instance, that the licensing model will continue? I'd like to be optimistic because it is the centenary of the BBC. But I think there's a very real danger now that the BBC could end up so different, uh, so diminished that it is no longer the BBC in the true sense of the word. It might exist nominally, but it's no longer serving the public in the way that it's always tried to do. And I think that the, the, the central nature of that challenge goes back to the political environment and specifically, I suppose, the current debate about the licence fee. The licence fee is appears very old-fashioned. It's attached to the TV set. It feels as if it's in need of modernisation and so on. Why, why is it something that's attached to a TV set when we have the internet and so on and so forth? But, but it wasn't for Reith. It, it had a moral dimension. For him, the idea of the licence fee was that it meant that no one would get a better service just because they could afford to pay more. And so although there is a very real debate about whether or not the licence fee needs to be replaced, I think the real challenge, the real threat to the BBC is if the alternative to the licence fee becomes a subscription service. Because a subscription service has basic can go one of two ways. Firstly, if you want it to preserve the kind of quality and range of services that the BBC currently have, it's going to be hugely expensive because inevitably fewer people will be subscribing. It, it won't have the same number of subscribers as people who pay the licence fee currently. So those who do subscribe will have to pay a lot more. It therefore becomes socially exclusive. Uh, and And I think that or it's it, the subscription charge is kept at a modest level, but then the service is drastically reduced. You do not get a range of things that I think people take for granted. You know, the full range of radio services, uh, programmes for, for children, educational services, recipes, all of those uh, podcasts, all of those things that are also supported by the old fashioned TV licence fee. So I think the challenge will be that the BBC needs, even if the licence fee goes, to find some alternative that in, ensures universal access in some way to the full range 
provision of programmes. Whether or not that is a, a household levy or something that's attached to uh, council tax or, or utility services and so on, I don't know. There are lots of different models that, that are being debated. I think the, the most dangerous thing for the BBC is a subscription service. But alas, I fear that because the subscription service approach is the most damaging to the BBC, that is likely to be the one that the government favours. And I think that when it comes to that, I think that is the point at which the BBC may cease to be what it has been for 100 years, which is a kind of wide-ranging service that is universally accessible on an equal basis. Because it has to have the political will in order to replicate the conditions needed to make that thing continue. That's right. I mean, you know, it will continue if politically the will is there to support it. It's a political decision. It's a political decision. If you think of all of the things that the BBC has navigated over the last 20 years or so, huge technological change, uh, for instance, the BBC has navigated that. Not, it's, you know, it's, it's a smaller beast in a larger pond in terms of media internationally. But it, it's, it's there as a new media operator. If you think of something like Radio 1, Radio 1 is a pop radio service, but it's also the largest radio station in terms of subscribers on YouTube with 7 million plus subscribers. So the BBC is capable of being agile in this new media age. The BBC is also, in many ways, an economic powerhouse still, even though it's been diminished in size. The data suggests, according to one study, that for every new job created by the BBC, 1.7 jobs are created outside. Now, on that basis, really, we should want a bigger BBC. Um, so, so the BBC, in a sense, can justify itself culturally, it can justify itself as agile in terms of new media. It can justify itself as not destroying opportunities for the commercial sector, but actually supporting and encouraging opportunities for the commercial sector. It's marshaled all of those arguments. It's got the evidence to suggest that it can be a kind of a, a positive contribution to British society in the 21st century. But the challenge is that political arena, the political will to support it and allow it to continue. And I, and I, I my biggest fear, I suppose, is that currently there appears to be a, a carelessness, I would call it, at the political level. Um, a lot of people would say, well, it's, it, it's stronger than that. It, it, it's a kind of a vitriolic attack on the BBC. And there is an element of that. But I think in many ways, what I fear most is that the BBC gets undermined and diminished and destroyed without really much care as to what the implications are, if that allows a government to continue in power, and if that's the price that needs to be paid, a hundred years of cultural achievement essentially will come to an end. Finally, then, it's always difficult trying to do justice to all the themes and the stories covered in a series like this. But if you had to sum it up, what does the story of the past hundred years of the BBC tell us about the wider story of, of Britain? Well, it's the hardest question you've saved until last, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I suppose, I, for me, 
for me, and, and a, another historian might give a different answer. I mean, there's nothing definitive about this, I think. But for me, this is the lesson, that in the 20th century, despite the terrible history of two world wars, the maintenance of a, of a destructive empire, misjudged colonial ventures the persistence of kind of racism, too few attempts to tackle structural inequalities of class and sex and ethnicity and so on, that there was in Britain the ability to invent and maintain a unique broadcasting system that was dedicated to public service, that generally, despite all its imperfections and failures, generally did good. It entertained us, it informed us, it educated us, and in that respect, in small and banal but just as important ways, it made the world a better place. That despite everything, this was possible and we maintained it and we kept it going. And it allowed us to have a national conversation with ourselves and also for Britain to exert a kind of soft power abroad that lasted longer than its hard power as its real imperial reach diminished that through something like the world service it was able to project a version of Britain that was nuanced and complicated to the rest of the world and achieve something that actually defence spending and countless foreign embassies were sometimes less able to achieve. That was David Hendy. His book, The BBC, A People's History, is out now, published by Profile. And you can also read more from David in every issue of BBC History magazine. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.